Meaning and Tradition by Henko Beckering. So I found this essay from through Maria Guadici. But modernity, modernity and Tradition. The designer's interpretation of the project commission forms the basis of every design process. In every urban planning assignment, and even in every part of a design, it is essential that a position be taken regarding program and commission objectives. This position is not so much a question of personal opinions or preferences. It depends on the context of the commission, by which I mean the physical context as well as the extended context, social circumstances, the opinions of the client, etc. Until recently, this critical positioning was unnecessary. During long periods in history, ideas about the order of things were fixed. In architecture, this was manifested in the major periods of style, and this is equally applicable to the manner in which cities were laid out, even at the time where urban planning as a discipline was completely unknown. In the modern and postmodern eras, these kinds of certainties no longer exist, and the designer consequently feels continually under pressure to adopt a standpoint, an individual standpoint for each specific commission. Avoiding this by assuming a personal style offers a false certainty. The excessive appreciation of the unique result and the vision of the architect or urban planner, both within the disciplines themselves and from beyond with the clients and the public, has resulted in the present extremely multicoloured range of concepts and ideas. The paradoxical effect of scale, however, shows that excessive variation on this level irrevocably leads to monotony at a larger scale, ultimately resulting in an undifferentiated mass. Other than the possibility of using an individual style as the basis of a design of a building, a second and broader cultural mechanism, that of tradition, could provide a basis. The distinction between style and tradition can be made clear from a somewhat exaggerated contrast between the two. Fixity is advantageous to style, while transformation is a general social mechanism that facilitates change, albeit gradual, as regards tradition. Studies in art history relating to style have shown that the ascent of new style often required a break with the previous one. This was particularly true for the formative phase of orthodox and heroic modern architecture, where the break with style was a consciously adopted tactic. On the other hand, tradition also makes feasible what we call historical continuity. This certainly does not imply that everything should remain as it was. Tradition should be understood as a way of doing things focused on action. Tradition provides a basis for the manner in which a system can accommodate change without the necessity of forgetting, without, quote, breaking from the past. By far, the majority of our cities were designed not so much as an entirety according to one given style, but more so as a sequence of components created according to a series of traditions, where the ideas the ideas of the time were applicable to the city as a whole. This suggests that historical continuity and consequently the mechanism of tradition are of special relevance to urban planning.
Moreover, as urban planning increasingly involves measures in and management of existing urban areas, in brackets, inner cities, post-war residential neighbourhoods, etc., an understanding of tradition and historical continuity is now even more relevant. The Dutch psychologist slash philosopher Willem Koerse, K-O-E-R-S-E, states that states this in succinct terms. Matters from the past, from the previous century or from the Middle Ages are part of the present. They constitute the oldest parts of the present. It goes without saying that their potential and the possible changes to them also belong to the present. What we now experience as cohesion in our historical cities is largely the result of design and construction in accordance with tradition. Returning to Willem Coerce, there is no present that will benefit from the wish to resurrect a past, but nor should it wish to break free from it, because then it robs itself of an essential dimension. That is why the past must be revered, not to resurrect it, nor to repeat it or to copy it, but to use it as a multiple source. Take, for example, the surroundings of Chedworth Forest in Cotswolds or the annexes of Gloucester Cathedral in a typical English landscape. I have chosen examples from England as the country of tradition par excellence. The landscapes keep their character, even though the scale of agriculture has increased. Their meaning and significance are still visible. In the restoration of monuments, the history of changes and additions is left intact. Cathedrals, for instance, sometimes look not like one, but several buildings that exist within the same structure at the same time. Cohesion, fragmentation and networks. Cohesion on one scale is a precondition for the recognition of a unit on a larger scale. This implies a formal hierarchy. It is unavoidable. The advocates of urban fragmentation consider this hierarchy to be reprehensible. This rejection has a moral undertone because hierarchy suggests inequality and consequently power. And in these times of heterogeneous equality, this is of course no longer considered to be politically correct, especially in the ever tolerant Netherlands. But formal hierarchy need have nothing to do with power. It refers to significance, legibility and comprehensibility. It does not refer to how people act towards each other, but how they act towards their surroundings. This, by the way, acknowledges that all significance is linked to a context. Fragmentation as a consequence of interruptions and sudden transitions has now become an undeniable fact in our cities and their peripheries. In the 20th century, discontinuities have been admitted as an aesthetic category in our appreciation, following their glorification by the modernists. They are now defended by terms such as innovation, the effects of contrast and alienation in modern art. This has become a widely based and deeply, deeply rooted attitude in our culture. According to thinkers like Arendt, Berman and Sennett, being modern presumes being prepared for disengagement from an existing concept, being prepared to renounce one's past and identity. However, this very loss of identity now evokes reactions from society. 
Clients offering commissions for urban transformation now consider the maintenance or recovery of identity to be one of the most important items in their program. Nevertheless, the mechanisms of modernity have consequences for the way in which contemporary society is organised, which in turn results in urban fragmentation. But this does not imply that the urban planner no longer has to design comprehensible and accessible surroundings. As long as architecture, and particularly urban planning, can be seen as expressions of society, whether or not consciously formulated or designed as such, attention should be given to their comprehensibility and accessibility. In 1981, Kevin Lynch gave a number of criteria for a, quote, good city, when experts still dared use such descriptions. These included... It should be sensible, identifiable, structured, congruent, transparent, legible, unfolding and significant. So that's from Kevin Lynch's A Theory of Good City Form. But it is also conceivable that the traditional design techniques used to arrive at spatial cohesion and significance are no longer suitable for all tasks in our cities. This means that it is important to investigate how and to what extent cohesion can be achieved by the design of the overlapping networks which determines how today's cities functions, the physical networks and the virtual networks. First, however, it will be necessary to develop a better understanding of networks and the network city and to describe them. One problem yet to be understood by the discipline of urban planning is the question of the, to some extent, non-traditional connections between the spatial and functional effects of contemporary networks. Instead of endeavouring to derive significance from the existence of invisible networks as such, it would probably be more fruitful to give form to the intersections at which the exchanges between the various networks actually occur. For example, at the entrances and exits of the underground infrastructure, as at Black Station, Rotterdam, designed by Harry Reginers, where the organisation and the handling of direct daylight filters down and accompanies the traveller quite physically along the way to the platforms. Public, collective and private. The most obvious approach would be to attribute a collective nature to the manifestations of society as reflected in urban planning projects. The terms public, collective and private, though, are used rather carelessly in the urban planning debate. We make distinction between three pairs of words. Public-private, referring to the territorial demarcation of spaces and places. Collective-individual, referring to both the desired and engendered social and psychological aspects, and accessible-inaccessible, referring to the right of access, function and use. The idea of Manuel de la Sole Morales, that the contemporary city is strengthened by a network of connections which are created by various forms of overlapping collective use of less accessible spaces, 
overlapping in terms of space and time, as well as in the composition of the collective groups, constituted an addition to the manner in which, in the urban planning and social disciplines, ideas about the relationships between the city and those who live in it or use it are thought. It seems that this idea must give rise to additional possibilities for reflection on the new forms of significance for life in the city and in the layout of its urban space. Of course, the phenomenon of collectives with their own ways of using the city and their own places within it is as such nothing new. To a certain extent, all social and cultural institutions are constituted only by the warrant of the collective. What is new is the abundance of differences and the relative mutual isolation of the collectives referred to by De Sola Morales. Just imagine the frequent visitors to the amusement arcade, the members of the sports hall, the customers of the sitting room restaurant, the chamber music ensemble, etc. Such diverse and specific types of collectives have become even more noticeable as the collectives which traditionally played an important role in society are continually decreasing in size and social significance. The religious community, the residents association, the brass band, etc. Investigation is required into the way in which the form of a city can respond to these new forms of collectivism. Are new forms of public spaces conceivable which could accommodate this diversity in a different way from the central city square dating back from the Middle Ages and all the other urban elements that we think we know so well? It should be realised that we usually forget that we would that they were generally designed for a completely different use from their current use, or were even created in response to a use that has since disappeared. Significance. This last question contains one of the central dilemmas for the theory of urban planning. When something is designed for a specific use, then it can also give an optimum manifestation of its utility. It acquires a specific significance and consequently manifests a given aspect of society. Nevertheless, it has been seen that all the important basic urban elements have been developed in the course of history, can take on completely different functions in the course of their lifespan. A good example is the arrival and enormous increase in motorised traffic in the city, which has been assimilated by its public spaces in the course of the years. The difference between the historical and the present views of the street, the Hoofdweg in De Barges in Amsterdam from the mid-twenties, gives reason to make a distinction between two kinds of significance associated with urban planning elements. The first type of significance is based on the symbolic value, the cultural consensus of what a street is or should be, which is relatively stable. The other type of significance is based on the actual use, which can, which can change enormously in the course of time. Society is continually changing, but the duration of squares and buildings operates on a much longer time cycle. The memories they evoke have an equally intractable constancy. That significance has become embodied in the stone and is kept alive in spite of the changes in society itself. 
The function of the past resulted in form, which acquired significance. The significance now associated with the form has become the function for society. If, as a result of the mechanism of tradition, these significances continue to play a role in the collective consciousness of society, which they do by their very definition, then an understanding of them is requisite for the discipline of urban planning. This is equally true for the design of new public spaces, for example, intermediary public spaces connecting large infrastructure to urban networks.